Hey, what's going on? It's Dr. Mike T. Nelson here back on the Flux Diet Podcast. And today I have a very special interview from my buddy, Dr. Tommy Wood. This was actually recorded uh, live from the jungles of Costa Rica when we were down there this past March. So you will hear some jungle noises in the background. Hopefully it's not too annoying. I tried to edit them out as best I could, but we talk all about glucose, health parameters, insulin resistance, sumo wrestlers, how you want healthy fat stores, and a lot more. Dr. Tommy is a wealth of information here, and if you like more information and a complete system of how to use all of this, check out the Flex Diet. Go to www.flexdiet.com. Dot com. Here's the interview with Dr. Tommy Wood. How's it going? Good. Good. We're here in the uh, Costa Rican jungle with uh, Dr. Dr. Tommy Wood. <laughs> and do you want to give us just a little bit of background on here? I guess we should say why we're down here. We're down mm-hmm. here at Dr. Ben House's place at the Burrow Research Center in the middle of the Costa Rica jungle. And you gave a super cool talk. Uh, one of them is what, which we'll get into here about glucose and insulin. Probably not what people are thinking about, mm-hmm. but what is kind of your background for people who live under a rock? And yeah, sure. um, probably not under a rock. I, there aren't. I'm not that well known, which I quite like actually. Um, <laughs> so I currently work as a research assistant professor, so research faculty at the University of Washington. Um, most of my work is in brain injury, um, but before then, sort of over several years, I did an undergraduate degree in biochemistry, went to medical school, worked in London as an, in internal medicine for a couple of years, moved to Norway for my PhD, which was in physiology and neuroscience, um, and then moved over to Seattle, uh, where I am now. So I have two main hats, one being looking at a brain injury, particularly pediatric or neonatal brain injury, and then another one where over several years I worked with a lot of athletes as a, I guess, a journeyman coach. So as an athlete myself, first as a rower, then I started to do more coaching when I was in med school, um, sort of interested in all aspects of performance, so just researching that kind of on my own. Um, and then slowly over time have been integrating that more and more into my sort of active research. So I still work with some athletic groups, some personal clients, and then some sort of larger um, athletic groups. Like now is a more formal part of my research in addition to all the, the, the brain stuff that I do. And you are the uh, CSO of Grow <laughs> Research Center, is that correct? Yes. Can you so confirm this? I, I can cons- confirm this. I conferred the ter- of the uh, title of CSO on myself. I used it as a chief snake officer because the first time I came here to the jungle, I was bitten <laughs> by a local venomous snake. Uh, but Ben has then kindly said that it can also be the chief scientific officer. So uh, we've just finished analyzing our first study that yeah. you, you uh, helped out with and, and took part in as well. You were both a, a scientist and a subject. Yeah, that's fun. And um, hopefully we're going to publish that soon. So the first of, of many uh, uh, things like research projects we'll work on together, hopefully. Yeah, and that, what I like about it too is that it's very real-world based. Yeah. Everyone's like, oh, we want more research and we want it actually in lifters, but there's, as you know, not a lot of budget for that and different things happen and even just trying to source subjects for the study is 
lots of people are like, yes, I want to do this. And then you're like, hey, here's your opportunity. Maybe you should volunteer. Oh, I'm busy, bro. I got I got a life. I got stuff going on. So, yeah, yeah most uh, most sports science research is done either in sort of sedentary populations as part of like public health efforts or it's done in undergrad students who you can convince to come into the lab and you have a lot more experience doing that than I do but it's not particularly representative of some of the populations that we work with or that uh, Ben who runs this place works with which is that you know very experienced lifters who can lift a lot of weight you know how do different factors affect their performance and that's hopefully or and long-term health and that's something we can hopefully look yeah at. awesome and before we talk about insulin and glucose I just have to poke the bear on this one because I <laughs> I heard a rumor you're gonna be doing a carnivore diet for a while yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna do uh, at least a month, probably six to eight weeks of a carnivore diet, and I'm gonna do it with somebody else in this health arena. I'm not sure whether he wants to be called out on it publicly. So yeah, I just texted name. him today, but we'll leave him anonymous <laughs> we'll, we'll for leave now. Him, we'll leave him anonymous, and um, part of it is just to get an idea of, of what it's like. I, I'm good friends with Paul Saladino, who is the he calls himself the carnivore MD, um, and. I just FYI, I'm not a big believer in the idea that plants are out to get us or any, or that carbs are bad or anything yeah. like that. The broccoli is gonna get you, bro. The, yeah, broccoli <laughs> is gonna is gonna trash my thyroid and all yep. this other stuff. Um, but um, it's an interesting thing. I like being able to try these things out so that I have real world experience in them. I've done pretty much every. I've done paleo, various low fat, low carb, keto. Um, and it's just nice to be able to tinker with those things. So yeah, see what it, see what it ends up doing. I'm gonna do some. I'm gonna do just for you, Mike. I'll do a 500 <laughs> meter row before and after to nice. see whether anything happens to my my glycolytic abilities. No um, 2K, I heard. The 2K that, was voted down. Man, no way. I, I will do. But you used to row competitively, so you know what like a balls out 2K is like. Yeah, and there's two. There's two parts to it. One is that I know if I sat down and did a 2K now, I would suck compared to what yeah, I've yeah. done it previously. <laughs> and, and that's going to be really hard for me. But also, I know how painful it is. So, um, I would. I would much rather do a Cooper run test than yeah, a two uh, than, a, than a 2K anytime. So maybe I could. I could probably. I could probably stretch to doing that doing that as well and then we can test my systems and see whether carnivore did anything particularly ketogenic diets have haven't worked well for me because i i tend to under eat so uh. i'm just not hungry and then i find it hard to maintain mass um and i don't think that's specifically a ketogenic diet thing i'm just not eating enough calories yeah um and so i'm gonna i know i'm gonna have to work hard at that on this diet too but we'll see what happens yeah. I, any predictions, or do you just want to hold them until you're doing the diet and done with it? I think I'll. I think I'll probably lean out a bit and maybe lose. Well, lose a bit of both. But I, my guess is I'll probably get leaner. My protein intake will probably go up. My total, my total calories will probably come down a bit. Um, so my guess is I'll lean out a bit, and I don't think it will have a huge effect on my performance, particularly because I don't train specifically for performance. Um, so I don't think much is really going to happen. And previously, when I've like cut out carbs or something, I've I don't notice anything. I, like, yeah. I feel okay. Uh, yeah, that's kind of my guess. If I were to guess, is that you may not see a huge change, but 
It's pretty cool of you to to do that, and I think you're doing some labs before and after. Yeah, so I'm I'm plan I'm planning to uh, at least the basics. If I if I really want to do all the stuff that I wanted to do, I'd be out a couple of grand. Yeah, and I'd, <laughs> I'm not that I'm not that committed, um, or at least to the to the testing side. So I'll do a bit of that, and I'll certainly do uh, blood sugar ketones, because I have all the equipment to do all that stuff. Yeah. So I'll do a bit of that as well. Cool, awesome. Speaking of blood ketones and glucose, you have a Gave a great talk down here that was awesome. Thanks. Loved it about glucose and insulin. So if you wanna, how do you think your perspective is different from what is kind of commonly taught? I guess we should clear up for the listeners. What is the common accepted theory of insulin and glucose? Yeah, so everybody thinks of insulin as the main hormone that regulates glucose. And they think that it does that by uh, binding to uh, the insulin receptor, which then increases uh, transportation of glute receptors to the surface of the cell, particularly like glute four, glute four in the skeletal muscle, for instance. And then there's more transporters, uh, more channels for glucose to go through, and more glucose goes into the cell. So uh, insulin directly increasing uptake of glucose into cells. And I talked about why I think we think that, and it's because of the way insulin was discovered. So it was discovered as the hormone that is missing and then required for survival in type 1 diabetics. So people who can't make insulin because they lose the beta cells in their pancreas. And this was discovered in the early 1920s. Um, for some decades before that, people had just been, they knew it was something to do with the pancreas. So they were injecting animal pancreatic extracts into mm. people with diabetes, type 1 diabetes, and, and seeing some benefit improved sugar control. And they've mainly tested that by how much glucose is ending up in the urine. Um, and so we've always thought about insulin being this thing that, you know, you give externally and then it goes around the body and it, and it pushes glucose into cells. And when you use it that way, that's true. Um, however, if you think about how insulin actually acts in, in like a normally functioning body where it's produced in the pancreas, it has like a series of effects that... We're like, and then the final one is that it, in, in high doses, is that it, it pushes glucose into cells. So it's made in the pancreas. Uh, the first thing that it does is it, by, is it active or inhibits alpha cell production. So insulin made in beta cells, glucagon made in alpha cells, and it reduces or inhibits the release of glucagon. Glucagon being one of the hormones that antagonizes insulin or raises blood glucose. So it's one of the hormones that tells the liver to increase glucose production through gluconeogenesis, you know, stimulate some of the breakdown of tissues to help um, you know, push that process forward. So basically get fuel from whatever source is possible. From whatever storage you have. So either yeah. glycogen in the liver um, uh, or you know, uh, protein in the muscles or you know, fat tissue. Cortisol does something, you know, is part of that process as well, potentially. Um, and so the first thing it does is it shuts off glucagon and then it goes to the liver through the portal vein. So there's a vein that connects the pancreas to the liver. Uh, it's where all, that's where all your uh, food gets absorbed too. So it goes to the liver first. And then the high insulin and low glucagon act on the liver to stop gluconeogenesis. So to stop the production of uh, glucose by the liver through that process that we were just talking about. So the first thing that insulin does, if you eat and your insulin goes up, the first thing that it does is tells the body to not make any of its own glucose. That's one of the most important things that it does. 
and then from there it goes out into the systemic circulation and depending on the dose and people have done some very cool dose dependent studies they'll like isolate an arm or a thigh or look at the whole body and they'll infuse insulin so they get insulin at a certain level and then they'll look at glucose they'll look at amino acids and then they'll look at fatty acids and you see the first thing that insulin does at very low at very low level sort of the mid-range of what you might get after a standard meal is it turns off the breakdown or the release of fats from fat tissue. So it, hmm. it inhibits lipolysis. And then at the same time, it's also inhibiting proteolysis. So it's inhibiting the breakdown of muscle tissue. So systemically, I think of insulin as an anti-catabolic hormone. So the first thing it's doing is it's stopping the natural breakdown of tissue. So your tissues are actually continuously turning over. They are continuously breaking down and being built up. And it's in this co continuous flux. And so when insulin shows up, the uptake of you know amino acids into cells, um, lipids into fat tissue, basically stays about the same. And then insulin just stops the other half, which is the breakdown. And so if you think about it as like a bathtub model, right? If you wanna like fill yeah. your bathtub, you can do two things. You can block the water leaving it, or you can open the tap. And most people think that insulin opens the tap, but what it actually does is it puts a plug in the water coming out. And then you get a net accumulation of either amino acids or fat tissue because of that. Doesn't uh, high levels of testosterone dramatically blunt catabolic effects too, as a side note? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, insulin is by no means the only player right. in the system. Right. Which may explain um, why, if you go into bodybuilders, why they use exogenous amounts of insulin, testosterone, other drugs. Not yeah. that we're recommending that. We're no. just saying from demonstration of physiologic effects if you go to the way end of the extremes yeah and so there are as you then increase insulin levels beyond that you do start to stimulate glucose metabolism so the the, the oxidation of glucose for energy and then finally you stimulate glucose uptake so insulin does do that but just at higher levels and if you if you administer very large doses of exogenous insulin as a bodybuilder might do and you also make sure to eat enough carbohydrate with that because yeah. that's the danger is you can drive blood glucose very low yeah and if you potentially that, die and potentially die, like <laughs> you know it's a, like you go into a hypoglycemic coma yep. um, and that, that has happened but if you do that then potentially at super physiological levels insulin may be anabolic um, but sort of in general day-to-day -day life it's not but you can as with everything, manipulate the system to, if you're trying to eke out an extra bit of mass gain, which probably most people listening to this would not be yeah. wanting to do. So just by eating my two Pop-Tarts, I'm not gonna get a high enough release of insulin to get close to that super physiologic level, correct? No, absolutely not. So what's happening when, when your blood sugar spikes um, and then comes down after you eat your Pop-Tarts, the, um, the blood sugar going up is coming from your, largely from your Pop-Tarts, but the main thing that insulin do is doing in that scenario is telling your liver, hey, we don't need to make any glucose because there's Pop-Tarts on the way. So ah, that's the so first So it's shutting thing down the production. It's yeah. not necessarily a, I'm using my little air quotes here, a disposal agent. Exactly. Because that's what's classically taught, right? Yeah. Oh, I eat Pop-Tarts, insulin comes out, woo! Insulin shoves all this stuff into tissue, which yeah. is kind of true at a high enough level, but it's also having another effect. Yeah, and so and the the other effect is by f like on a day to day basis in a healthy person is by far the vast majority of what insulin is doing, 
Um, and it's interesting because if you then get into a state like type 2 diabetes, where you're insulin resistant, you have high levels of circulating blood sugar, the majority of that is unregulated glucose production by the liver. It's not because insulin isn't shoving glucose into cells. And glucose uptake into cells in type 2 diabetes is actually high. Like those cells hmm. are still taking up loads of glucose. It's just there's so much coming out of the liver that it's, the system isn't regulated. So most of it is happening. Um, like it's, it's extra glucose that you're making, which you shouldn't be. Like that's the big effect that's causing high blood sugar in, in type 2 diabetics. It's not that the cells aren't listening to the signal or not taking up the glucose. And so that's why certain drugs that affect the production at the liver are effective for type 2 diabetics? Yeah. Yeah, and so anything that you can do to improve insulin sensitivity, well, I mean, pretty much in, in, any, in any cell, um, will like buffer that process but yeah there's any so something that improves metabolism of the liver will definitely help um there was there was some uh there were a um a class of drugs called the glitazones yeah um which were PPAR agonists weren't they um, from are they the ones from the lizards uh no that's the oh i'm mixing them up yeah that's that's like um exenatide which is yes. a, which is yeah so exenatide is from is from the and that is that's a GLP one. GLP one. Okay, agonist, you're right. Yeah. yeah. So, but so these this is a PPAR agonist, and it it increased insulin sensitivity. Um, but then what happened was because people's fat became more insulin sensitive, they were really then they were, their cells were were much better at taking up more fat. So, like the amount of fatness that you can get is like your metabolic buffer in this whole system, and so one of the downsides of making a tissue more insulin sensitive, particularly if it's the fat tissue, is that it will get fatter faster. So, and then there were, the reason why they don't use those drugs is because some of them um, cause cardiac issues. But, so you can kind of create insulin sensitivity, um, but that's not, always a, that's not always a good thing if you're then trying to think about you know, overall weight and other things. Right, but we would actually want to take fuels and have more, I think of it as sinks, to dispose of it in. All right, if we can take these fuels and drop them into the liver, if the liver was low on glycogen mm. or the muscle or fat tissue, is if we start having fat tissue that is becoming more insulin resistant, right? So we've kind of taken that away as a sink to put substrates, right? Things floating around in the blood. We may potentially get leaner, which is debatable, but then we'd start having health consequences because of that, correct? Yeah, so I think of our fat stores as our main metabolic buffer, and pretty much you know, all of the data, I can't say all, but most of the data in this arena suggests that having healthy fat tissue that isn't quote-unquote full, like you haven't filled your stores, and what constitutes the capacity that you have there are multiple different things that feed into that but as soon as your fat stores are full for whatever that is for you that's when um you've you've lost your buffer and then you start to see this overspill um you you're not able to store anything and then fats just end up getting stored wherever they can get stored so sometimes they'll end up in the liver the pancreas the muscle tissue um so you've lost that sink um you can um buffer that again with physical activity so that's obviously something yeah um that is very protective and uh, yesterday we talked about sumo wrestlers who have stored vast amounts of body fat but being so active and training so frequently um 
their muscles are a huge sink for glucose and actually keep them metabolically healthy while they're still active. Um, and even in most people, the vast majority, so it's like 75% of all glucose uptake goes into the muscle tissue in people eating um, you know, a standard mixed diet. And uh, at least 75% of that, but potentially more, is non-insulin dependent. Hmm. So it's basically, it's just um, stimulated by the movement of the muscle tissue. And so just activating the muscles causes the translocation of GLUT4 to the, to the surface. So you don't need insulin to do that. Um, and I would argue that you're probably going to be in much better health overall if you're not relying on insulin to do that job. Um, you're just doing it because you're activating the muscles through whatever whatever exercise or movement it is you're doing. And then having more muscle tissue is going to potentially give you a, a, a bigger buffer. Yeah. What are your thoughts about my bias is also movement, right? So first, move as much as you can. Don't worry about what fuel you're using. Mm -hmm. Don't be so hyper-specific because most people just don't move enough, don't exercise. Yeah. But what about a population that's doing that pretty high frequently? Their step count is good. They're doing formal exercise. Do you think it's of a benefit to do something like fasted cardio or ways to increase the burning of fatty acids so that you're, in essence, pulling more fuel through the fat cell to kind of allow that to be a little bit bigger buffer if needed? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think... That's my bias, and you yeah, can tell me if it I, sucks. No, I don't. I, I, I don't think. I don't think it do suck. It does suck at all, and I, I definitely um, am a big uh, proponent of your idea of metabolic flexibility. I certainly agree that you should be able to use the right fuel at the right time for the right for the job that you're trying to do, and so that requires um, capacity at both ends of the spectrum. Um, and most people, uh, again, if we so. Going back to the general population, most people just aren't really giving that aerobic system time to really rely on fat. You're, you're, continuous, you're continuously suppressing lipolysis by just like continuously eating. And it's not necessarily because, you know, it's the carbs or the carbs make you fat. But if insulin is high enough, you're not relying on those body like tissue stores to then sort of run the system. And so doing periods of that, I think are definitely going to be beneficial. And sort of when I've worked particularly with endurance athletes um, who are going to rely a lot on that system. Um, fasted cardio, uh, sleep low, those kind of tactics to kind of, um, you know, stre not stress, but you sort of push yeah, or push use that, that system. system. I think it's definitely beneficial in terms of the overall adaptations, yeah. Yeah, cool. What about this line, which is a quote I stole from Jeff Volick, and I've used it a lot, but I always wonder in my head about simplistic coats, and maybe I made it too simplistic, but that insulin is a fuel selector switch, mm -hmm. so higher levels of insulin kind of pushes you to use carbohydrates or glucose, lower levels kind of push you to use fat. Yeah. From a, Would you agree with that, just from a fuel selection standpoint? Obviously, insulin does more than that. Yeah, so I think it's, uh, it's definitely... Um it's, it's like an it's an integrator um, of fuel metabolism largely via the liver and that's definitely you know and that's definitely you just think about all the things that it does even if it's not pushing glucose into cells what it's doing is it's reducing the availability of endogenous substrates which are largely right. going to be amino acids and uh, fats once you particularly once you get past whatever liver glycogen you might have um, so it is then putting you into a state where you're going to be using carbohydrates as as your main fuel source. So 
that's so where insulin acts in that system maybe isn't so well understood or I don't think it's uh, described as accurately um, as it could be but in reality that that is what it's doing yeah yeah cool um, what other parts do you think are misunderstood about insulin that are useful to the average person listening um, so I think the, the most important thing to me what other than just you know having a better idea of what it does and when it should be doing it is that I spend a lot of time in the low carb spheres and insulin is definitely the bad guy right like it's the, the boogeyman it's, right it's the boogeyman and it does you know it does so it's it is um, a, you know elevated insulin is associated with or it integrates with a lot of other pro-growth pathways, like the IGF-1 pathway, and they integrate um, through different mechanisms, but like through mTOR, and you know, if you're continuously stimulating that, you potentially increase risk of cancer and some other things, um, type 2 diabetes as, as, as well. And yes, that's definitely true. However, insulin and normal insulin signaling, including um, potential spikes or you know some peaks in insulin, um, are very useful. So you need normal insulin signaling for various good things to happen uh, in the brain. And just like saying, getting your insulin as low as possible, I think is very unhelpful. Um, and in the, you know, that same space, we talk about insulin, people talk about insulin resistance as a root cause of modern disease. And it is, so insulin resistance, so which would be anything in the in the spectrum of dysregulated glucose metabolism. Basically, that's the easiest way for us to measure it, um, at least. So elevated fasting blood glucose, elevated C-peptide, anything like that. Uh, triglyceride HDL ratio, you can all use these as proxies. Um, all of those things, you know, insulin resistance is associated with Alzheimer's disease, cardiovascular disease, uh, multiple types of cancer, like I said. Um, and so people think of it as this like core central thing but in reality insulin resistance doesn't just happen so what annoys me is when people say insulin resistance is the problem but like what is it that caused the insulin resistance i think that's much more interesting and much more important um so you can't just stop at insulin resistance and say well hey we know what the problem is it's insulin resistance because usually then the answer is eat less carbs um, <laughs> when but, is, when the, there could be many other things feeding into that so that's the most important thing that i think people need to know is that insulin resistance isn't the end point right there are things that feed into it and the answer isn't always eat less carbs although that can absolutely help yeah but i think i always think of the eating less carbs as what context a person we're talking yeah, about absolutely if it's bob whose butt looks like a couch cushion who doesn't move at all and is eating like 7-eleven slurpees with no ice yeah cutting back on the carbs is probably going to help bob yeah if it's a crossfit athlete doing two a days I see them like not eating enough carbs to even yeah. fuel their exercise. Yeah. And those two populations are completely different, right? You're talking about one who's pretty healthy, physically active, one who may even have underlying pathologies, not physically active. And it seems like, especially in health and fitness, we want to conflate both of those. And we always just talk about the thing and not necessarily the context of what it actually means in each area. Yeah, and I think what I've seen a lot of is... Uh, people who work in um, populations with a pathology, obesity, type 2 diabetes, they have these strategies that may include extended fasting, some of them 
uh, anti-protein for whatever reason. Um, <laughs> That's a whole other podcast. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and I've actually seen clinicians like prescribe protein levels that I thought would probably should constitute malpractice but that's yeah. like a whole different oh yeah um and so like they're using these tools in sick people when they can be where they will actually you know absolutely be beneficial in for some period of time so you need to move on to the next thing but the people who are listening to that message are not those people they're right. the people who are hyper focused and hyper interested in their health so you're right we I've worked with crossfitters who thought I need to eat a low-protein diet because protein causes cancer. I need to eat a low-carbohydrate diet because that will make me the optimal fat burner. <laughs> and, um, oh, I should intermittent fast because autophagy. Of course, autophagy, and, bro. Yeah, because autophagy. And then you're eating, you're averaging like 1,500 calories a day on a guy who wants to train 20 hours a week. Like, Good luck. Do, what do you expect is going to happen? Then, he, yeah. you know, he turns up, thyroid's trashed, libido completely in the, you know, in the toilet. And that's exactly, so that's, I, I think that the problem is that the message is coming from people who work in pathological uh, situ- uh, uh, populations, and the message is, is being listened to by people who are active and trying to do everything at the same time. And then that combination often you know, really hurts the listener. Yeah, I've been the same argument because I get hate mail from like everybody now about <laughs> ketones that like, people are like, oh, you're so anti-ketone, you don't like the ketogenic diet. It's like, what context? Yeah. Right. So for a while, I had the ketogenic CrossFit people who would come in and they're like eight weeks would go by and they felt great and all of a sudden they felt like they got hit by a truck and they can't figure out what's going on. Yeah. But if you look at actual pathologies, type two diabetes, maybe TMI or TBI, head trauma, yeah, yeah. bunch of other things, like I think a ketogenic diet could potentially be amazing. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't always see it go the other way. Right, just because it's really good for some type of pathology doesn't mean that it's going to be the cat's meow for performance and yeah. vice versa. Yeah, so I mean, just because anything works in any in one population, and that's great, and we want as much of that information, as many of those studies as possible, but then to generalize that is, I think, is a big misstep that far too many people are doing, yeah. Yeah. Cool, so as we wrap up, two questions. Uh, one, you mentioned a few blood tests. Are there some simple blood tests or other markers, performance things? If people are listening to this and trying to decide, you know, do they have any insulin resistance? Mm. And, like, kind of how would they know? Yeah. So I think the 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 things we mentioned, fasting blood sugar is is, is a good one. Um, what number do you want to kind of see for that? Under 90. Under 90, okay. Ideal, uh, so like 80 to 90 is ideal. Okay. Um, if somebody's on a ketogenic diet, it may well go lower than that. Sure. But in some in populations eating a mixed diet, eighty to ninety seems to be the sweet spot in terms of disease risk. Uh, triglyceride to HDL ratio, ideally less than two. If you're working in milligrams per deciliter, yeah. Um, uh, you know, closer to one if possible. Um, a, a lower threshold, maybe one point five, in populations who aren't Caucasian. Uh, they t- tend to see less of an increase in triglycerides uh, when they start to become insulin resistant. Um, you can certainly look at things like, um, you know, if you're willing to spend a bit more, uh, C-peptide gives you an idea of how much insulin was released the whole 24 hours before. We talked about that before. Fasting yeah. insulin isn't as good, but it's another measure. It might be easier easier to get. Um, then I think one really nice uh, thing to do is just like tracking your own. So you don't need to do this on a lab test. You just get a glucometer to, to have at home. So we talked about, you know, how high is your blood sugar spiking after a meal? Ideally, it shouldn't go up by more than 
definitely not more than 50 ideally not more than 30 so okay. say it's it's um it's 90 you have breakfast it goes up to like 120 125 uh within an hour to 90 minutes it's back down closer to where it was initially like that's great anything where the peak um is a lot higher than that so the peak is more than 50 so say it's you know initially it was okay so maybe you were like 95 to start but then it goes up to like 145 or 150 it takes a little bit longer to get down like not to like two hours or a little bit longer then you may be thinking okay this is um this is where you're maybe there are some some issues going on so that's all super easy stuff uh, to get you can like any primary care physician would give you a fasting blood glucose and a, and a basic lipid panel where you can get triglycerides to hdl ratio and a glucometer can be like 20 bucks so it's definitely super easy to start looking at that and if you were to add something like if you think you've got high glucose excursions like a glycomark test might be useful yeah that's definitely useful in populations eating a mixed diet um, Glycomark is 1,5-anhydroglucotol, and it, you get it in the diet, you get it in your food, and it competes for reuptake uh, with glucose. So when glucose uh, go, like spikes, typically above 180 milligrams of deciliter, so when, you're, when your glucose goes above that, you start to lose glucose in the urine. Um, and then what happens is your glycomark goes down. So if you're low glycomark, um, that's, that's a, a kind of a sign that you're getting big glucose spikes. It doesn't seem to work in, in people eating low-carbohydrate diets because they're actually consuming less of the 1,5-anhydroglucotol. Uh. So, so it artificially lowers it. So when I've, you know, we've seen a lot of uh, ketogenic um, people, people eating ketogenic diets, it's always low, but we know they're not spiking uh, up. Gotcha. Um, we didn't mention HbA1c. Okay. That is a decent, and again, any primary care physician would get you that. It's a decent marker as long as you're testing against yourself. So, yeah. It's something to track over time rather than say you get a one-off and that's good or bad. Yeah. Unless it's like very high, like six, six or, six or something yeah, crazy. Six or above six. Um, if it's sort of like in the five somewhere or if it is above six, you know, and you and you do something about it, watching it track over time and having your own data to compare to is useful. Having like my 5.5 compared to your 5.5 in terms of average blood sugar, all that kind of stuff is completely different. It doesn't yeah. necessarily, like it's not comparable between people, but within yourself is useful. Um, fructosamine is another one that's like a shorter term. Um, it's like a short term HbA1c, like 30 days rather than three months. Um, so so those things too, but you know, I'm, I, I always like, I always think of are these all different ways of telling you the same thing, and, right. and probably they are. So, yeah, so yeah. if you get a couple, of them, <laughs> if you get a couple of them and they agree, then you probably have an idea of the picture without having to do all of them. Cool, awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, I don't know. Do you still do any consulting work? Are you pretty much full, or how would people find you? Or maybe you just want to hide in the jungle of Costa Rica <laughs> yeah. and not be found. <laughs> yeah, I, I um, people can find me on Instagram at uh, Dr. Tommy Wood. Um, usually, I'll post stuff on there a couple of times a week. I mainly do full-time research now, and then w when I do work with people, it's usually through somebody else so there are a handful of physicians who will reach out to me if i can like help interpret some labs or come up with some ideas to help their help their clients or patients so i'm i act more more and more as a consultant rather than a direct um a direct physician but if somebody is like um certain that i might be of use they're always welcome to message me on instagram or uh, my website is dr ragnar r-a-g-n-a-r.com um and find me on there 
And that's literally your middle name. That's my middle name. Yeah, yeah. So like, <laughs> people are always like, I don't get it. Um, so that's my middle name. It's also my handle on Twitter. But by the time I, I um, like, succumbed to Instagram, somebody had already taken it. So that's uh, why, that's why the handle is different. But, but yeah, so, so any, of, any of those, um, if I can answer any questions, I, I definitely will. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks. Greatly appreciate it. Yeah. So big thanks to Dr. Tommy Wood there for a wonderful interview. Again, recorded live in Costa Rica at the Flow Retreat Center there. Big thanks to Dr. Ben House for having myself uh, down there along with uh, Dr. Tommy and everyone for two weeks this past March. You can go back and also listen to the podcast I did with Dr. Eric Helms. We talked about our experience there in Costa Rica, and he talked about also some work on periodization for training. So this podcast has been brought to you by the Flex Diet Certification. If you want eight different interventions for training and nutrition recovery to use both with yourself and with your clients, based on the concept of metabolic flexibility and flexible dieting, Check that out at flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. And if you enjoyed this, uh, drop us a review on the old iTunes or whatever your favorite podcast listening devices. We will read each one of them and do our best to incorporate your feedback. So thank you very much. Greatly appreciate it. Talk to you soon.